Hello and welcome to the Unequal podcast by me Kabir Agarwal. This is a podcast about all things inequality. In our first episode we will be talking about the impact that Russia's unprovoked invasion of Ukraine could have on global hunger. A combination of factors such as climate change, rising prices, conflict and impacts of COVID-19 have already led to a situation where 1 in 10 people are forced to sleep hungry. Vladimir Putin's war is likely to worsen the situation as both Russia and Ukraine are among the world's most important sources of grain and agriculture produce. My guest today is Alex Smith, who is a food and agriculture analyst at the US-based Breakthrough Institute and someone who has done extensive research on this issue. Welcome Alex. Uh, to begin with uh, can you give us a brief snapshot of just how important ukraine and russia are for the world's food security yeah for sure um ukraine i think it's it's become fairly complex now i think a lot of people are talking about it at this point um but ukraine is is one of the larger bread baskets of the world it's been a major a major producer of grains for centuries and was you know extremely important to the russian empire in terms of their food production important to the soviet union in terms of their food production and in the last like 30 years or so has become a really significant exporter of food to developing countries throughout the world um so they they're the number 3 exporter of corn they're the number 5 exporter of wheat uh and they also are leading exporters of a bunch of other grain crops and and, and oil seeds and oil crops um So the the what what made it, right it's been, it's been known as the bread basket of the empire of the Russian empire and the Soviet Union and then Europe Yeah I mean I I think bread basket I don't know I don't want to date or like um give bread basket more historical like sort of power than than it is but yeah it's it people call it a bread basket of Europe for sure um and why is that the case is it down to fertile lands or policy definitely i mean it's it's a lot of it is to do with the very very fertile soil uh it's in sort of a, a belt of very fertile soil that goes there and also goes into russia um uh recently it has benefited from some land reform but there's actually the sort of policy of ukrainian agriculture is is very complicated something that i don't know if i have expertise on to go into on this podcast but there's a there's some there's actually some question as to whether it could be much more productive if you had um different kinds of land tenure and different kinds of land reforms uh that a lot of politicians right now are actually um working towards in Ukraine but but this is i think this is going to be on pause at least for you know the foreseeable future so so how is how is this current situation going to impact food security around the world and in what in what regions are going to be the most severely impacted Yeah, for sure. Um the sort of main the main focus that I have that I've had writing about this and thinking about this is sort of focused on the wheat exports of Ukraine. Um as I said they're a very large they're number 5 wheat exporter in the world. Uh at least they were in 2020. We don't really have good data moving forward from that. Um and they export mostly to the Middle East and North Africa and Southeast Asia and South Asia. Um so Lebanon for example is sort of the 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 most um sort of difficult example uh their Lebanon imports roughly 50% of their total uh total wheat supply from Ukraine uh and given that about 35% of 
of caloric intake, uh, like the average caloric intake of a Lebanese person comes from grains. Um, this is a fairly significant portion of their calories. Uh, you see similar dynamics in places like Libya and Tunisia, which, which import 43 and 32% of their total wheat supply from Ukraine, respectively. Um, and then you have places like Malaysia, Indonesia, Yemen, Bangladesh, that are all above 20% of their total wheat supply um, coming from Ukraine. So the concern I have is that if there is a severe disruption, either from uh, the invasion that's going on now, like pushing people off land, uh, removing the laborers that are necessary to harvest, uh, or even just like blockades and blockages on the port cities in Odessa and on the Black Sea, um, you could see a severe disruption of this trade that could put places like like Lebanon, Libya, Tunisia, Yemen in dire need of wheat in the short term without good alternatives for trade at the same time. And with all of this together, and combined with, you know, we have a series of crises that are impacting food prices around the world. Um, but so if you combine this like short term shortage with these high, already high food prices, you have um, a real problem in terms of these countries, especially countries that are facing food insecurity and political instability already. They, they're going to have a really hard time finding the imports to, 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 to substitute this wheat uh, and to pay and paying for those imports because they're going to be even higher in price than you know they were two months ago. Uh, and they may continue to increase with price depending on you know the extent and impacts of the crisis. Okay, so if we can unpack what you've just said. So mm-hmm. one question I had was when you say short term, uh, what do you mean? Do you mean a matter of months uh, that this could be a crisis uh, in a few months or what time periods are we looking at? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think um, I don't really have a great answer for like exactly predicting you know time periods or the sort of the actual dynamics that are going to happen with, um, you know, I, with the relationship between this trade and, you know, current stockpiles of wheat or other food products in places like Lebanon. Um so it's it's really unclear like at what point this this sort of, like a disruption becomes a crisis, um, and it then is also you know subsequently very unclear like when this crisis could be solved through either you know purchasing of substitutes or food aid or other kinds of aid from other places. Um, so yeah, I mean I think it's it, I don't really have a great a great guess, but I think there's a lot of a lot of variables and factors that could dictate the time and sort of yeah. the. This, Which will this only factor. become clear in the uh, following weeks, I guess. Yes, yes, I, I agree. It, it should be clearer as time goes on. Um, this, the extent of disruption should be right. fairly clear. Um, I think there's a lot of sort of questions left. And, and, and also the, the reasons uh, for the disruption. So, so like the, the Ukrainian wheat harvest takes place, in some next harvest will be sometime June or July, right? Yeah, I, so a lot of it is winter wheat. I think the, the, the planting, the season that that is talked about as the July to June season or June, July season. I'm, I'm sorry I'm, I'm, if I mess it up. But yeah, so it, it should happen earlier in the summertime. So currently, if like, like we see that uh, the commodity prices, the commodity of in the markets, wheat prices have already increased mm-hmm. uh, exponent. Like just yesterday, they've increased 5%. Mm-hmm. And in the last year, I mean, food prices have already been very high due to mm-hmm. the supply chain pressures and due to the impacts of COVID-19 and weather events across the world. 
so uh, can you uh, explain how the commodity trade impacts the actual availability of wheat um <clears throat> I, I don't think I can explain that exactly. Uh, it's, a, it's a tough question. And, you know, um, I sort of working on exports and, you know, commodity trading stuff recently. This is a it's a recent phenomenon for me. So I'm still trying to learn okay. the ropes. Um, but but yeah, it does, it's, it's, it yeah. does like, I mean, the value of trade, a wheat traded in the global market is more than the value of the wheat that actually exists, right? Yes, and it does. It, it has, I think it, there is an impact, although the extent to which that impact is like is, you know, the, the extent to which this sort of virtual world of trading, like becomes the real world of, you know, actual uh, import export is, is fairly complicated. But I think there are ways that this is impactful, um, just in terms of, in, in terms of like, marking up prices for, for the that abstract sort of trading. And, and also the the regions that you mentioned would be the most impacted like most of these countries are already i mean they are developing countries they are suffering like you said uh, mm-hmm. political crisis uh, so they are i mean pretty uh, like yemen for example is very very food insecure has, yes. and has been for a, for a while yes. so how is it uh, that these countries have come to depend on ukraine for its wheat uh, imports so heavily yeah i mean i think i think part of it is is Proximity in some cases, the the like the Black Sea trade sort of going directly to the Eastern Mediterranean, uh, I think has some has some impacts on this. I think there's also um, the I think Ukrainian wheat historically has been cheaper uh, than a lot of other wheat sources, and like like Russian wheat as well has been um, I think potentially thought of as less less high quality than than say like U.S. wheat. Argentinian wheat. Um, so, like, I know for Russia, uh, they have had like a they've they've had to negotiate um, wheat deals with countries because of the potential for like wheat smut, which is a, like a wheat disease, uh, and a sort of set of worries about you know what is or isn't um, higher quality. So, I, I think Ukraine has had similar sort of problems and have have driven them to export to places that, you know, need need wheat and are willing to sort of accept this slightly lower standard wheat than, say, um, EU countries or anywhere else. Um, but in general, the developing countries are much are much more likely to be wheat importers than developed countries. I think there's a this is sort of a, a global phenomenon where a lot of the sort of large-scale wheat production has happened in places that have like highly mechanized, uh, highly capital-intensive agricultural systems. Um, and Ukraine has benefited from having sort of vast amounts of very high productive soil uh, and sort of subsequently doing this more monoculture, um, uh, monoculture-intensive agriculture uh, that can produce it at scale. And that, that's something that requires capital um, and that, so these, there's this larger sort of, um, income dynamics, like sort of national income dynamics in this as well. So given that some sort of di- disruption is inevitable now, right? Like yes. even in your piece that uh, you wrote that you, you wrote that a possible attack must be, uh, should be averted if, if it can be, but that's no longer the situation. So should these countries be already looking at some sort of alternatives and what could those alternatives be? 
Yeah, I mean, Lebanon is already doing this. Um, they already are trying to seek out other other markets to get wheat from. Uh, I think there's there's potential for uh, sort of substitution from the United States and Argentina to other very large wheat producers. Um, there's large wheat production in a number of countries all over the world. So, so yeah, they, they, they could do that. The, the problem that happens is just that with the disruption, you see you just have higher prices overall. So um, it's just like taking any amount of supply out of a market. You're going you're gonna to see prices go up. Uh, and in this case, it's just going to cause it's, it's going to cost these countries more to feed their population. And it's going to cost people in those countries more to feed themselves and their families. Um, and with this, this substitution, it's also going to cost more for the domestic populations of the countries where the substitution is coming from. Um, in places like the U.S., this is really it's, it's, it's potentially a very small price increase. Um, but like you said before, like food prices are already up so high um, compared to uh, years ago, a couple of years ago, uh, and like I saw yesterday, that wheat prices are are as high as they have been since uh, I believe since the since two thousand eight and the financial right. crisis. Um, so you were already seeing this like massive food inflation everywhere. Um, this just adds onto that, and just you we I think the. The worry of a famine, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm a little worried about it, uh, but really? the real concern, I mean, maybe just in terms like just sort of in my core, but the real concern, I think, is just of the people who are already facing food insecurity, who already struggle to pay for the food that they need, not being able to do this, like that the sort of there are more people being pushed into this category. Uh, and the people who are already in that category are, you know, now even worse off than they were two months ago. Yeah, uh, it was interesting and, and and very worrying that you mentioned that you uh, are worried about the prospect of a famine. Yeah, I think uh, that's an overstatement. I, I, I just want to pull that back a little bit. Um, but in, in, I, yeah. in certain parts of the world, we are already looking at that kind of situation, like even mm -hmm. before the conflict, right? The yes. World Food Program has has like recently i think said that 45 million people around the world are uh, knocking on famine store i mean they have that classification system so it's yeah. uh, one of those and they do not really work in all parts of the world so it might actually be an understatement but yeah. uh, no, like in afghanistan we've seen a crisis like situation with conflict coming on the back of drought Yes. Uh, right. Yemen, again, we see similar situation. And then we see drought in certain parts of Africa yet again this year. So yeah. these are already very troubled uh, times. And, and, and on top of that, to have this kind of disruption. Definitely. Uh, uh, I mean, I think you can also add, I mean, one a factor that we haven't talked about here that is, I mean, it's tangentially connected to Russia, Ukraine, um, is the cost of fertilizer. Uh, right. Which is our, which is also up higher than I think. Some of them are some fertilizers are at even all time high. Um, it, there are there are some that are two hundred percent higher cost now than they were at the beginning of twenty twenty one, and that really has a lot to do with energy costs. Um, fertilizer is like the cost of fertilizer is pegged almost like almost directly to the cost of natural gas. It's because uh, the Haber Bosch process that. Um, that produces ammonia, uh, which is like a key ingredient in fertilizer, uh, is a really energy intensive process um, that that is like one of the only ways to do this at 
like cost efficiently. Uh, there are other geopolitical sort of causes of fertilizer expense going up. Um, China and Russia are both curtailing or fully limiting Russia or fertilizer exports uh, because of these costs. Uh, right. And places like Belarus that are, you know, major exporters of potash, which is a kind of fertilizer, um, this sort of potassium salt that's used um, to, to like put potassium in the, or put phosphorus in. So that, yeah, that, that's a situation which could impact um, food production some months down the line, right? Yeah, yeah. And there was a, there was a report that came out uh, about a month ago that suggested that the, the sort of lack of fertilizer in sub-Saharan Africa specifically could, um, could reduce production by, you know, I, I don't remember the exact number of tons of food, but it was equivalent to about 30 million people's worth of caloric value wow. um, in, in a place that already is not there. there there's, I think Purdue, there is surplus product production of agriculture in some countries of Southern Africa. Um, but this country, that area that is, you know, food insecure, losing out on that, that chunk of, of food, that chunk of sort of caloric production is, you know, very scary. And right. again, adding these crises up is where, you know, I think you can get at you can sort of get to this place where, you know, I, I can sort of not really thinking about it very hard to say, like, I'm scared of famine. That's how I get to that sort of fear. So like, like some have, some have suggested that this is like the creation of a perfect storm. Even if you just look at agriculture and global food security mm -hmm. like coming on the back of COVID-19 rising prices, um, economy is plunging and then we are, and, and climate change. And then we are pushed into a situation like this. So yeah, yeah, it seems like it to me. It's it's um, a very scary, very scary time in the sort of food security world. And I think there are, there are some, you know, there it are things. Get, it, it doesn't get noticed or talked about as much. Uh, would you agree? Uh, yeah, I think so. I think I think people are interested in it. I think right now people are like in the last couple of days are obviously very interested in you know what's happening on the ground in Ukraine. Um, but it, one thing that's funny to me is sort of the extent to which, um, you know, Russian oil and gas and fossil fuel exports become like the central Correct. conversation rather than, you know, the actual food. I mean, I think fossil fuels are obviously super important to like fueling economies, um, but food security seems a significant one. And I mean, it's food security of places that, you know, are not Europe. I think there's a big focus on yeah. Europe in yeah, this conflict. yeah. yeah. That is unfortunate. You spoke of um, uh, 2008, uh, which brings me to something that you wrote about in your article, which is about how uh, we could also expect revolutions, right? Can you can you speak to that? You spoke about the 2008 uh, food prices rise and and then how that led to the Arab Spring. Yeah, I mean, I think that I, I think the connection is is made a lot between you know food price increases and political uprising. Uh, I think that there's a there's sort of a like a, it seems sort of myth mythological to me in some cases where people are like oh like it's there's there's people are just worried about like their what what's getting in their belly there's like this this drive towards um, food and that's what what sort of pushes political uh, political radicalization uh, whatever you want to say regime change um, I think I think there is an element of that that seems to be true. I mean, bread bread riots and bread strikes have happened historically in a lot of places. Um, I do think that that these are, you know, food becomes this 
medium or this sort of like food insecurity becomes a way to sort of see into some of the deep inequalities that exist in places already. Um, okay. And when when people are hungry, I think you you do see like it, it just all of these pre these already existing conflicts and issues become even more clear to even more people. So I do want to sort of put back that, you know, Arab Spring was a result of food. I think it was a result of political inequalities and this a, a bunch of factors and the food part of it is only one part. Um, but yeah, I think you see this even more recently than Arab Spring. I think you look back to Lebanon in 2019. Um, and I think there was a, ser- a sort of a cost of living crisis that drove um, sort of the political uprisings in the fall of 2019 uh, that lasted for, for quite some time. Um, and in Kazakhstan, this past, like in, in the last few months, um, I think fuel prices have sort of also, again, fuel, fossil fuels have gotten a sort of central focus, but food prices were, were, were a cause for concern for protesters um, and were, you know, one of the, another one of the motivations to driving regime change there. So, yeah, there's, there, I think there is, it's like, again, when we get, when we look at places that have political inequality, like social inequality um, and other forms of inequality, and you add food insecurity in like it becomes it becomes sort of a sparking mechanism in some cases it's not the only one but yeah, i just want to yeah. say it's sort of it's it's the trigger in, yeah, on occasions yeah, right? definitely can be yeah uh, going further back into history in, in that piece you again you also mentioned uh, that that this is not the first time if if that happens that that russia would be intervening in ukrainian agriculture this happened in the 1930s yes uh, and, and led to a horrific Famine, which killed between four and seven million Ukrainians. What yeah. were those policies which led to those that kind of a situation? Yeah, I mean, this is a the Holodomor. Uh, I don't know if I pronounced this that word correctly, but um, yeah, it's a terrifying sort of historical moment um, when when the Soviet regime, when Stalin, uh, sort of pushed farm collectivization uh, right. and like. Put, put really heavy quotas on um, wheat producers in this very sort of fertile region of, of Ukraine um, as exports to other parts of the Soviet Union. So you were seeing like like production of, uh, you're seeing sort of farmers pushed off their land, sort of taken with like the subsistence farmers being like totally removed from the landscape and then being used as labor on uh, collective farms that were producing just wheat and just you know other commodity crops um, that were then going to be pushed like sent to other parts of of you know the the Soviet uh, other parts of the Soviet Union in general um, and then you also saw like a set of of sort of ecological and climate issues that uh, drove like drove down the the productivity of this land I mean it was also probably a productivity loss from this like significant um, like political and social shift. I think, I think there's like, uh, it can't, it probably was that as well, but you saw a productivity yield drop. Um, and with that, there was like a massive amount of hunger that came from that. And you said a famine that was, you know, on the order of millions of deaths. Um, right. This is a really politicized event um, too, like in the last few years, even uh, where Ukraine has um, sort of become to memorialize the Holodomor while Russia has like consistently tried to undermine this sort of historical uh, tragedy and sort of talk like talk about it as if it was 
um, like sort of minimize it and do a lot of work to to brush it under sort of the rug rather than to sort of embrace and think about it. Um, but yeah, I mean, as we said before, Ukraine has also been just Russia, Russian um, encroachment, like yeah, Russia and Ukraine have such a long history that that's also not the only or the first time that Russia has been involved in um, Ukrainian agriculture. <laughs> so I just wanted to clear that. Yeah. So. <clears throat> Okay, so just to wrap up, mm-hmm. um, what do you think is the worst case scenario going forward? Looking at the uh, next uh, six months or the next year, what is the yeah. worst case scenario in terms of global food security? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, it's a, um, it's hard to say. I, I, I do. I really, uh, I, I've been put on. You know, I've been asked to predict stuff recently a bunch of times, sort of talking about this, uh, and I always am like, you know, I don't have a crystal ball. I don't really. I don't really have a great idea about like what the future could hold in the worst case or even the best case. I'll rephrase it. So what, what is it that we can expect given what we know in the last mm-hmm. uh, sort of 36 hours that, I mean, the, the scale of the invasion is pretty massive. Right? Yeah. Uh, so what is it that you will definitely expect to happen? Uh, and what is it that the governments around the world, especially the developing nations should be preparing for right now? Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I can, I definitely expect there to be like significant disruption uh, at, in the best case, it's a disruption of, of export that is just going to be a lag in export that you could sort of see the same productiveness and the same amount or like a close to the same amount in the long run. It's just going to be, you know, hindered by um, the sort of issues with ports issue hindered by um, trade through the Black Sea uh, and that you would just have to that like countries just need to sort of figure out how to bridge this gap between uh, like the sort of certain the, the whatever resources they have now and uh, until like they can sort of get to this substitution either from abroad or from um, Ukraine or Russian wheat coming in later um, that's sort of the, I think that's like the minimum issue that we're going to see. Uh, right. And I think countries can, um, like we talked about, sort of trying to find substitutes. I think I think this is something that, um, that sort of the countries, all of the sort of EU and US and all the countries that are sanctioning Russia right now should also be thinking about. Um, and I think they should also be sort of giving, or they should also be sort of giving thought to how they can do this, like how they can sort of approach this issue through food aid or other kinds of aid. Um, or even, I think there are a lot of people who are pushing for um, these countries to use, use the sort of sanctioning work yeah. to try to like create, uh, to try to like support refugees coming out of Ukraine. I think you can maybe do the same kind of thing where you, if you're sanctioning some of this Russian wealth and you can take some of this and then use that towards um, feeding the the places, feeding these very food insecure places that are going to see this lag. So, I mean, speaking of sanctions, this reminds me of a question I wanted to ask earlier. Mm-hmm. So, are, are we going to see an exemption for food items in 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 sanctions because this is just too risky a territory to get into? Yeah, I mean, I think so. This is a whole other can of worms that is. Um, this is this would get to like the worst case scenario stuff, um, hey. but yeah. So I, I think that I think that the United States is is very wary of doing uh, food sanctionings generally. Um, 
the United the U.S. has done this before. I mean, it's continued to do it in Cuba for a long time. Um, but I think in the last, I think 2014, we did not sanction Russian agricultural exports. They were much less significant. Um, and 2014, they are now. Uh, the worry I have is that sanctions would put the Russian domestic economy in, in such bad shape that Putin and the Russian administration would curb sanctions, curb exports on their own. They would either halt them okay. completely or just limit them. Uh, then and they've also already sort of, been reducing them since last year. Yes. Yeah. They've been, they've been limiting them and, um, and the and Putin is not you know he's not afraid to cut off food exports. He's, they did it in 2020 for a few months following um, the COVID-19 outbreak. They did it in 2010 following droughts and wildfires. Um, and that that 2010 one has been sort of um, marked again going back to the Arab Spring uh, sort of analogy um, has been sort of shown has been marked as like a significant influence on the food price increase in um, in like. Lebanon, Syria, um, Tunisia, and Egypt, like leading up to the Arab Spring. So this is this is not like a new thing that could happen. I think I think if and to sort of make matters worse in this way, Russian uh, Russian wheat exports are so they're so significant to food insecurity, but they're not so significant for Russian you know export value. Okay. It's only okay. about two percent. Um, so in, like, so the they best. have the sort of leverage. There, which we would hope that they didn't have. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think I think people people sort of call have sort of worried about. There's there's an essay um, by uh, I can't remember the names of the author. One was Sherry Goodman, another one I can't remember the other author um, that sort of worried a little bit. I think it was written in 2020 about the weaponization of wheat, and I think this sort of falls into that okay. category a little bit. Um, I think it, there's also um, it, whether it's like an actual weaponization of food exports, or it is um, like just the, the the Russian government trying to sort of like just lower pressure from domestic concerns. And, and in, in similar, in a similar, I mean, in taking into account all of this, I think uh, China had lifted all wheat import restrictions on Russia a while ago. Yes, they did that. Yeah, I think they, they announced that yesterday, I believe, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah and I think there's, it's it's interesting. It'll be interesting to see how sort of China fits into this broader, um, you know, food trade system. Now that there's like going to be this sort of reshuffling, um, even if it's a smaller reshuffling in the short term, just with Ukraine, or this broader reshuffling if we do see um, limits on Russian exports. Okay. Thanks a lot, uh, Alex. That was um, very enlightening. I learned so much uh, and I hope so did everyone who's listening to it. Thanks a lot for taking out time uh, to do this and uh, let's hope for the best case scenario, whatever yeah. that is. Yeah. And uh, let's, let's, let's just hope that this is over very, very soon. Yes. Um, yeah, I agree. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, it was lovely uh, to speak with you. Uh, hopefully, yeah, I hope that this could be, you know, educational for some folks, but I hope also, um, yeah, I, I also really hope that this does not lead to the, the worst case. Um, yeah, absolutely. Fingers crossed. Yes. And thanks. Yeah. Thanks, Alex. Of course. Yeah. Have a good one.